Hello and welcome to the Energy Aspects podcast. Last week we released our oil outlook for 2017, The World in Oil, which you can find online on our website. It covers 10 chapters, each of which details a key theme we believe will be relevant for the year ahead. In our next few podcast episodes, we will look at these themes in detail. We open, of course, with a historic OPEC production cut that dominated the headlines at the end of last year. Our chief oil analyst, Amrita Sen, and analyst Verenda Chohan tell us more about the impact this deal will have on global supplies, especially given the high levels of compliance that we are expecting from OPEC. Chapter 1. OPEC. The Blind Assassin. At the end of 2016, OPEC came together and made a historic decision to cut almost 1.2 million barrels per day of production in 2017's first half. Now that will shape much of what will go on this year, particularly on the supply side. Of course, we are not expecting 100% compliance from all the members. Uh, OPEC does have a tendency to cheat, but I should remind people over here is that even though the media tends to overplay this and suggest that compliance is as slow as 20%, the reality is data going back to 1980s suggest that compliance is around 60%. This time around, we are expecting compliance of about 80% because Saudi Arabia and the other GCC countries, Kuwait, UAE and Qatar, will follow through on their 800,000 barrels per day of cuts, and the other more likely culprits to cheat, who are Iran and Venezuela, are unlikely to do so. Particularly Venezuela in this case, because their production is already declining, they have a severe cash crunch, they haven't been able to pay service companies such as Schlumberger, who have been reducing their activity in the country, and that's why their production is organically declining. So inevitably, they will comply with the cuts, even though they may not want to. So historically, OPEC has a good record with compliance, especially within the GCC. And those countries that don't historically comply, well, they're unable to raise production anyway, which is extremely promising in terms of not cheating the deal. In fact, as Amrita mentions, The only concern we have this time around with regards to cheating is actually Iraq. Iraq was not particularly happy in coming to in coming together to form this deal. Uh, they believe they should have been exempted, much like Nigeria, Libya, and Iran as well. So Iraq is expected to cut by about two hundred thousand barrels per day. However, so far they haven't shown any signs of doing so. They continue to push out very high loadings of around three point five million barrels per day from the south. And nothing other than just pure rhetoric suggests to us that Iraq is actually going to comply. Yet, I think the market shouldn't lose focus. Because even with zero compliance from Iraq, and that's, what, by the way, what we are including in our balances, we still expect global stock draws of about 700,000 barrels per day through the course of the year. One thing to bear in mind is that these stock draws will take time. This is not going to happen overnight. Remember, there are basic saving times involved, uh, about 20 days to Asia, 40 to 45 days to the US. So it will be by the middle of Q2 2017 when we really start seeing the full effects of this 
talks taking place also because by that time you are going to get refineries starting to buy again after the maintenance period in the spring. So Iraq's compliance, whilst unlikely, is also almost immaterial to the effects of the production cut on supplies. And the cut will influence balances and draw down stocks in time. But due to the global nature of the industry, we will have to wait until quarter two 2017 to see this in full. Once it has exerted its influence, though, how long is the deal likely to last for? Six months? A year? One other thing the market has been particularly concerned about outside of compliance is that OPEC is probably going to just reverse this decision come end of May because it's just a six-month policy. Now, this is where we would caution slightly and say that because OPEC is targeting inventories, and this is very important, by the way, because they are not targeting a particular price level, they're targeting what they believe is the excess overhang of around 500 million barrels. They want to run that down. They know that that's not going to be a six-month job. They know that's going to take about a year to run down. And most likely, unless the whole deal falls apart, for whatever reason, uh, this deal is likely to get extended for the full year. This also means that the balances for the second half of the year, which currently don't factor in any open cuts, could get even tighter as the year progresses. The other reason why OPEC came together was concerns about another year of underinvestment. But this is also important in understanding the rationale for OPEC to come together and do this. This isn't about giving in to shale or losing a so-called battle. It's also realizing that if they didn't act now, you could see yet another year of severe capex falls which sets the scene for a very, very damaging price spike down the line. And I think it is very important to bear in mind that for Saudi Arabia and a lot of GCC countries, $100 oil is as damaging for their outlook as $30 oil is. After all, these guys have a far longer time horizon than the average shale producer. They look at the 2040-2050 scenarios and they need oil to still be in the energy mix. Already, there is a big push to electric cars and generally against fossil fuel vehicles. On top of that, if we had $100 oil, it would just speed up that move away from fossil fuel cars. So all of this together, the, the concerns about high inventory levels, concerns about years of underinvestment leading to price spikes, really drove OPEC together. And that's why we also believe that compliance outside of Iraq will be very good and that is what will shape the market for most of this year. However, the deal was also historic, not just because of OPEC, but also because key non-OPEC producers, particularly Russia and Kazakhstan, were involved with the deal. Russian production has been growing very strongly. It launched around 400,000 barrels per day of new fields uh, in 2016 pushing output to around 11.2, 11.3 million barrels per day. Now, Russia is expected to lower output to just below 11 million barrels per day for the first half of this year. Importantly, consensus expected Russia and Kazakhstan to grow by about 800,000 barrels per day 
On our own numbers, we had it growing by about 400,000 barrels per day. But with this historic deal, both will now constrain production and effectively year-on-year growth for the full year is only going to be about 90,000 from the former Soviet Union region compared to anywhere between 400 to 800,000. Yet, despite all these positives of a big OPEC cut, a big reduction in possible FSU growth, the market still believes that all of this could be offset by rising U.S. supplies. But can that actually be true? Can it be true? Will U.S. shale grow to the extent that it hampers the OPEC deal? Virendra delves into why Energy Aspects believes that this isn't the case, looking at non-OPEC supplies in detail. Chapter 2. Non-OPEC supplies. And then there were none. The market assumes that supplies can return like at the flick of a light switch. And whilst US shale is very responsive to um, an uptick in investment, an uptick in rig count activity, an uptick in completion activity, it still takes time. It can take anywhere between six months to a year and it's going to depend on which basin you're in within the US. So for us, we see essentially growth constrained to one basin, that's the Permian, and that's going to be the sole driver of US production growth. So we see 300,000 barrels per day of growth there, but you take the Bakken, you take the Eagle Third, or any of the other smaller basins which were growing when oil was at $100 per barrel, we're not going to see much by way of growth there. I think the other point that's worth mentioning when we consider US production is a lot of that growth comes from NGL. So of the 0.5 million barrels per day increase in liquids growth, only 0.2 is crude. The other 0.3 is coming from NGLs. But as Virendra points out, non-OPEC supplies mean more than just the sum of US shale. And unfortunately, it doesn't look good. And then if we were to take non-OPEC supply as a kind of broader metric and not just the US, I think that's an important point. People often assume non-OPEC production growth is equal to US production growth because that was indeed the case between 2012 and 2014 or 15. However, going into 2017, we're taking an anti-consensus view that non-OPEC supplies will decline by 0.1 million barrels per day. We've seen, if I look at CapEx trends, if I look at international rig count activity, I look at um, activity in fields, all I see, I essentially see a 3D show. I see depletions, I see declines, and this spells disaster for the outlook for non-OPEC production. I think all of these factors are going to mean that the forward supply curve is um, decimated, and we've done a lot of analysis at the field level. So I took, for example, around two-thirds of non-OPEC crude production, I'm finding that the number of fields in decline has increased by 20%. So there's over 500 fields that are actually declining globally last year. And given the trends we've seen of CapEx being cut by 41% from its peak, it's going to be very difficult to turn that round. Up until now, I think what producers have done is been able to manage an acute cash crisis by maximizing output. But this has had an undesirable consequence in depletion. So whilst net decline rates in places like the US and Russia may have come down, the reservoirs have been depleted at unsustainable rates. If 
If I take, for example, the North Sea, that we're depleting their reserves at a pace of 20%. That essentially means that if no activity or no investment is made, then the UK's reserves will be gone in five years' time. So ultimately, what this means is that you're going to get a spike in decline rates going forward. And um, what's worse still, the buffer from a 2 million project backlog in 2014 to 2017 halved to just 1 million barrels per day in 2018 and 2019. And so that's where the Saudis or the Middle Eastern producers, the GCC members are looking to invest because they want to avoid that price spike and the negative consequences that that could have on demand. So it doesn't look good at all for non-OPEC supplies, with a very real three-dimensional devastation in terms of declines and depletions in the running. But Varendra mentioned this was a counter-consensus view. What is it that others are missing when they look at this picture? So I guess the um, naysayers would argue that, well, last year non-OPEC supplies declined by 0.9 million barrels per day, and this year it's normalising or coming out at only 0.1 million barrels per day. I think the important um, point with all of this is we expect declines and we expect declines to accelerate given the rate at which fields have been depleted um, globally and outside of the US. Even if we stick to the US, a key source or center of growth outside of shale and tight oil is the Gulf of Mexico. So we've had three years of production growth there. We're forecasting a decline in the Gulf of Mexico this year exactly for this, result, for this reason depletion rates have stepped up. So depletion rates, ever so slightly different to decline rates, are the culprit behind the sorry state of non-OPEC supplies. Can it get better though? Is there any hope for the future of these producers? I think it's going to take time, it's going to take money, it's going to take investment, it's going to take a lot of patience. Time and money. As with most things, investment is the key. So there you have it, details from the first two chapters of the World in Oil for 2017 report. OPEC will see high compliance with its production cuts, but US shale is unlikely to counteract this due in part to the large depletion rates affecting non-OPEC supplies globally. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you very much for listening.